I have a little bit of an ambition, um, ambitious idea right now is to look at the whole chapter of Galatians 5. We probably might not get at all of it, but we're going to uh, take a good look at that. So if you could turn to Galatians chapter 5 in your scriptures, or more likely your phones, your tablets, whatever you have. If you have it tattooed on you, that's even better. Um, don't tell pastor I talked about tattoos. That's not good. This is not a good way to start. All right, Galatians 5. Real quick, as you guys are turning there, just some background. You may or may not be familiar with the book of Galatians. Um, this is not original, but if it could be summed up and distilled, if you could ring it out and then just look at one sentence summary of the book of Galatians, it might be something like this. Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. We miss out on the gospel if we try to add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so this was happening in the church that Paul started in Galatia. And there's some debate about where in Galatia exactly, but Paul went on a missionary journey and he spoke the gospel. This gospel, it's important to note, was handed down to him, as he says in, earlier in the book, um, by Jesus Christ himself. And so he, you know it's good. It's the truth if Jesus is giving it to you himself. And so he um, then met with Peter and James, who was kind of the head of the church in Jerusalem at the time, and they confirmed it. They're like, yeah, Paul's got it right. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, so then he went on his missionary journeys, spoke that gospel, and boom, like God saved people. And it was this really awesome thing. And these community of faiths, uh, community of faith got started. And so what happens if we're not careful, and the temptation for maybe even some of us in here today is that if we're not careful, we'll let things creep in and we'll start trying to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what was happening in the church in Galatia. Specifically, what was happening is there was this camp called Judaizers, and they were Jewish background believers who were saying simply that you had to kind of essentially become Jewish before you could become a follower of Jesus Christ. They were saying, yes, Jesus, yeah, he was the Messiah, and following the law and the customs of Judaism. And so Paul who was no like stranger to Judaism, is going to write this letter just reminding them that Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. So chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, real quick, I would encourage you, uh, maybe later tonight, sometime this week, just read the whole book of Galatians. Um, it's going to make a lot more sense if you're able to look at the whole thing in its context, but that's kind of just a little... That's extra, free of charge. Uh, all right, verse one, and I'm reading out of the NIV in case that matters to you. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's important uh, whenever we come to the scriptures to remember that we're looking at the scriptures through a very specific lens, one of uh, Western society and more uh, particular American society. So that means certain things. Uh, for example, why I kind of pause right here is we come to a word like freedom that's been translated from the Greek um, into the English word freedom. And we think of maybe this American ideal of freedom and liberty. And that's not bad, but just remember that's not what Paul's talking about here. Just to remind us, what Paul is talking about here is the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus from being slaves to the law. And what that means is um, requiring for ourselves or for others, perfection in following the law to obtain favor from God. 
And so that's the freedom that he's talking about. And that freedom is in Christ. He's talking about a burden of a yoke of slavery that the law has its purpose, but it's a burden that we can't live up to. Its expectations are too high for us. And so the law was always meant to just say, like, if you are a person of God, if you are a follower of God, if you're my person, then this is how you should act. It was never meant to be a means of becoming a person of God. And so we get that mixed up. I get that mixed up even now today sometimes. So the law has that purpose, but it also has the purpose of being a burden to crush us under the weight of its expectation and then, not to leave us there, but to point us to someone who is perfectly able to fulfill those expectations, Jesus Christ himself. So don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Verse two, he says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that you, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Mark my words. This is Paul just, um, my son's actually in the very back. And um, when he does something he's not supposed to, especially if it's gonna cause him harm, I say, Atlas, I'm serious. And uh, it's, oh, sorry, son. I think I freaked him out. Um, but but it, it obviously doesn't work because what's been happening is he's now been sitting Sarah and I down and saying, I'm serious, Dadu, when he wants a treat, and it's just, it's a mess. But this is Paul saying, I am serious. This is Papa Paul bringing his spiritual children together, saying, I'm serious. Mark my words. This is a matter of eternity at stake. And the issue at hand um, is that they, this group, the Judaizers, were trusting in this Jewish tradition of circumcision for salvation. I'm getting into that. But the principle for us tonight would be if we trust in anything, our religious activity, any kind of tradition, it's as if Christ is no value to us at all. If we could become friends of God in any other way other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, then why did Jesus have to come to earth to die and rise again in the first place? Is basically what he's saying. Verse three, again, I declare to every man, just real quick sidebar, every man, I don't know what women were doing at the point, I guess you just were left out. Who lets himself be circumcised, he's obligated to obey the whole law. If you're gonna trust in the law for salvation, you better do it to the full. Obey. The standard for God is holy perfection. God is holy. You hear that a lot from the stage, that God is holy, and rightly so. That's his chief characteristic, is his holiness. And that, what that means is that he's separate from us. He's different. And one of the main ways that he's different is his moral perfection. He is perfectly moral. And if we want to be in a good relationship with him, that's our standard as well. Good news for us, Christ met that standard. I'm gonna move a little quicker. You who were trying to be justified by the law, that's the issue at hand, that they were trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ. So already in this short few verses, those who are trying to be justified by the law have been uh, alienated or cut off from Christ and they're acting as if Christ is no value to them at all. You've fallen away from grace. Not that um, they've lost their salvation. If you just read that at face value, you can maybe draw that conclusion. But what Paul is saying is you've become out of step with the grace. It's like when you take the step off uh, to walk on the street, to cross the street, and you take the step off the curb, and sometimes you think it's a little deeper than it is. Maybe you were not paying attention, and it, you kind of like just stumble. 
It's like you're out of step, out of sync with the grace of God. Verse five, for through the spirit, we eagerly await, get this, by faith. So this is the solution. If the issue was that they were trying to be justified or made right with God by following the law, then the solution is that we are justified or made right uh, with God by faith, the righteousness for which we hope. Verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It's like, it doesn't even matter. It's a moo point. It's like a cow's opinion, moo. No, no friends, uh, fans in here? All right. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So he's like, guys, like he's getting down to the brass tacks. The only thing that matters is faith. And uh, as like Martin Luther would say, it's faith alone by which we're saved, but it's not a faith that remains alone. And so we need to pay attention to that, just not because it's Martin Luther, but because he's getting it from Paul, who's getting it from Jesus Christ. That's where his authority comes from. I want to pause real quick, and uh, you're probably wondering, like I am right now, why in the world would I talk about circumcision in my first time talking and growing in a long time? That's awkward. Um, the point is, is because the principle still remains. We can trust in anything other than Jesus Christ to make us right with God. And so for some of us, it may be a religious activity, similar to what it was for like uh, that church in Galatia. It could be that uh, we feel like we have God's favor when we're a good person or when we're coming to church or you know, fill in the blank, whatever kind of religious activity, rather than resting in belonging with Jesus Christ because of our faith in him. Uh, we could enter into that blank, Jesus plus something. We can enter in anything. It could be just our tradition, what we're comfortable with, uh, the style of music and uh, the form of worship, this, anything we can fill in that blank with, whatever it might be. So I would remind us in here today, myself included, that the only thing that counts is faith. And it's not just faith, but it's going to be expressed through love. He's um, going to continue on, and he's going to talk about the kind of flip side to that, because there's another double edge to that, where we can go too far to the other side. But he's uh, not done kind of destroying this argument of what we could call legalism. In verse 7, he says, you were running a good race. It's like Paul came in, and he was preaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they believed it. They believed it, and it changed them, and it infected the community in a good way. And they were running a good race. They were headed in the right direction. It was a good thing, but someone, and he says, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. He's making a clear distinction that this false gospel is a lie, that uh, Jesus understands ultimate reality, that he is truth, as he would say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is this false teaching that is at its base just a lie that Jesus plus something is the gospel. And he's telling them, this kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. It doesn't come from Jesus Christ. It's coming from somewhere else. And he's going to deal with them in just a second. 
He says this common phrase in verse 9 that they probably might have known. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And I'm not really a a baker. I don't do a whole lot of baking. That's my wife's job. And she's kind of taught me a few things. And I can sometimes follow a recipe, okay? But I know enough to know that you put yeast into flour and you mix it in with egg or liquid or whatever else and you make a dough and you put it in the oven and it bakes. I much prefer to just go to Sprouts and buy a loaf of bread. It's a lot easier. But um, my wife knows how to bake. And so the concept here, though, for us to understand would be that a little yeast or a little lye, no matter how seemingly insignificant or small, can infect the whole batch. And what it does when it infects is it changes it. And so in the Church of Galatia, there were individuals who were believing this lie, this camp of Judaizers were believing this lie, and it was infecting and changing them and their view of the gospel and their belief of the gospel, which in turn would change and infect the way that they act and feel towards others. And so a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Verse 10, Paul says, I am confident in the Lord. I think it's important to know he's confident in the Lord, not in his ability to persuade or write a really compelling argument, even though he's a master class in both of those things. But his confidence is in the Lord that you, meaning the church in Galatia, will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that might be, will have to pay the penalty. He's clear there's, there's a cost to spreading a lie, especially specifically when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who are spreading that lie are gonna pay the penalty. Verse 11, he says, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. There was a rumor probably started in the Church of Galatia that Paul himself was still preaching this as an important part of the Christian faith. And that might've come from the fact that um, he had a background in Judaism himself. In fact, even in this letter, he talks about that background. Elsewhere, he talks about himself as a a Jew of Jews. Like he was on the track to become a rock star in Judaism when Jesus came into his life. And so it could be that. It could be that he had his disciple Timothy um, be circumcised so that he can better interact and do ministry to the um, Jewish background believers because Timothy was a Gentile. Whatever it is, he's just squashing that rumor. He's like, why would I be persecuted if I was still preaching the things those who are persecuting me are persecuting me about? Well, it doesn't make sense. And all right, so verse 12, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And once again, I'm wondering why did I choose this uh, (laughs) preach on? It's fun. If you want a memory verse for the week, I would... I mean, Galatians 5.12, why not? Point is, just go the whole way. Like, <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll leave it there. Verse 13, um, it's going to now introduce this concept. All right, so he's really been dealing, dealing with uh, what we could call legalism. That's not a word found in Scripture, but it, the concept is in Scripture, and in particular in the book of Galatians. The idea behind legalism is that we would trust in our effort or our ability to perform the law in order to gain 
favor or a good relationship with God. Uh, simply put, it's what I can do to be a friend of God. Um, and so this was playing out in the Church of Galatia very clearly. What it does, though, uh, it has a low, low view of the grace of God. Um, it has a high, high view of what I can do in my performance and my ability to uh, perform in the law. So this is not just a you know, first century problem. If you're anything like me, and especially for those of us who have been around church for a significant amount of time, you may or may not struggle with that yourself. Uh, and this is really important because there's this side, which is legalism, and he's going to deal with another side, which uh, people would, this argument would be thrown at Paul often, and he deals with it in the letter of Romans as well, but the idea that, well, okay, Paul, I got you. It's not by the law that we're saved, that we have a good relationship with God. It's grace, and that's awesome. Yeah, I got that. So it's grace, and it doesn't matter then how I live. And so that's like the flip side opposite. And if you've been around church long enough, and especially our church, you know that that's not true either. But those are two temptations I think any of us might face as we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to have a good relationship with God is on the one hand, either we're drifting and being tempted towards legalism or we're being tempted and drifting towards antinomianism, which is just another big word about like it doesn't really matter how we live then as Christians. Grace will cover it. And both are distortions and lies about the gospel of truth. So he's going to deal a little bit with that. And maybe there was a whole camp like the Judaizers who were saying that, no, it really doesn't matter how we live as Christ followers, that we can live however we want because grace is going to cover that. And uh, it's really important for us to know that the best lies have an element of truth to them. And so the, on the legalism side, there's an element where they really do value holiness, right? Like, the perfection of God like is in, held in high esteem. The problem is, is it distorts the gospel in saying that we can achieve this ourselves by working hard enough, long enough, and uh, that's just not the gospel. And on this side, it has an element of truth in that, like, yes, God's grace is amazing. Like, we sing that song, and sometimes we take it for granted because it really is amazing. The problem is, is that uh, it's meant to transform us into the image of Christ, it's not meant to just be a catch-all, like, I can live however I want to now. It's what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor and a author during the Nazi regime in Germany, and, and I won't go into his story too long, but um, God really used him, and he wrote this book called uh, Cost of Discipleship, and it's a good read if you ever just need another book. I don't know if we need another book, but there it is, Cost of Discipleship. And real quick, I'll give you the cliff notes or the too long, don't read version of that. Um, and in the introduction, he talks about cheap grace versus costly grace. And really, it's the argument that Paul's making here is that when we believe and, and by believing we live out cheap grace that says that we can give intellectual assent or we can be fans of God without letting um, it change who we are, in our thoughts and our actions and our emotions, that really we're cheapening the grace of God. When, when really, and in fact, it cost God 
a lot. It cost him his own son. And so the alternative then would be to, to live and believe and then let it infect who we are. Costly grace that says that, yes, it is a free gift that we come to Jesus by faith alone. And that is a grace from God, all right? And both of those are gifts from a loving God. But that grace is meant to transform us into people who are more and more increasingly like Jesus Christ. All right, so I think when we see also two polar opposites, legalism and antinomianism, this that says, yes, we need to follow the law to gain favor for God, and no, we don't need to live any way as Christians. The, the temptation then is to say, okay, well, we got to take some of these and meet in the middle. But really, the cool thing about the gospel, and this is what I love about it, is that it says, no, it's not necessarily taking the best of two really bad systems of thought. It's a whole new way of thinking and believing. And so what Paul's going to talk about is living by the Spirit. So verse 17, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. There's that theme of freedom. But it's not freedom as we might understand it as complete autonomy, hyper-individualism, untethered, you can live however you want. Christian freedom, in understanding in the New Testament that Jesus taught is a freedom that's tethered to something, to someone in particular, but also tethered to Jesus Christ's rule of love. So you're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, which would be over here, antinomianism. Don't use it to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Real quick sidebar, this idea of flesh is our, our sinful nature, what we sometimes use in church language, sinful nature. It's just disordered desires, what Augustine would call disordered desires. It's the things we love and desire and crave and want that are in opposition to Jesus and God's will and what he wants. And remember, God understands reality better than anyone. He understands ultimate reality. And so what he wants is actually best for us. But the flesh is that tug towards wanting those things that we feel. So he says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another. So that's the antidote to indulging flesh, is just serving one another. And we do it humbly in love. Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from an uh, Old Testament passage in Leviticus, actually. It's this cool way that Paul's like, yeah, you Judaizer camp, you really have a high view of the Old Testament and the law. Well, so do I. So does Jesus Christ. We value the Old Testament because Jesus Christ did as Christ followers, as Christians. And so that's what he's saying, but, but you're forgetting the whole point. The whole point is to honor God, to love others, and help them uh, follow God. So he says that's, that's the command we should be following. If you want a law to follow, follow the rule or the law of love. Verse 15, in contrast, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. This idea of biting and devouring each other is this vivid word picture for division that's uh, not obviously gospel-centered. I mean, he's causing division against those who are teaching lies about the gospel, but unnecessary division about the, the fluff, 
that stuff that doesn't really matter in life. It's, it's the gossip. It's the telling lies about people. It's those types of things. And all of that is community killers. Like if we give those into those things and we have a habit of gossip, of lying, of pride, of one-upmanship, of whatever it might be, our communities, whether they be Sunday school, uh, connect groups, churches, they're going to implode. And that's his point. And it's opposite in contrast to serving one another. 16 says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That idea of walking is this journey. We sometimes talk about following Jesus or being a Christian as a journey, and that's good because that comes from here, from Paul. Walk by the Spirit. The idea is let the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God just permeate every square inch of your life, meaning your thoughts and your actions and your feelings, all of this. Keep in step with the Spirit. And then he's going to introduce this concept of the flesh, which is our desires or cravings for things that are anti-Jesus, being at war with the Spirit of God in us. He says in verse 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. They are in conflict with one another. So it's the idea of there's a war going on in the deepest part of who we are where there's this thing called our flesh, the thing that desires and craves, that has an appetite for things that are anti-God. And then there's God's spirit, and they're at war, not as equals, as we'll see in just a little bit, um, but still warring. It's this idea that like we're there, but we're not quite there. Like what God has done for us through Jesus Christ has um, set us free from the ch- chains of sins. Like we, like just saying about that, right? Like this is true, but we're not quite there. If you know yourself well enough, like I know myself well enough, I'm not there. And there's this conflict happening. And then he's gonna talk about the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. But before I talk about that real quick and we'll wrap up, there's many acts of the flesh, many acts, many manifestations of people and communities giving into those uh, disordered desires that are in opposition to God. There's going to be a lot of different ways that might look, but there's just one fruit of the Spirit. And if you were here last year when a pastor talked through the book of Galatians at Grow, um, and if you weren't, I, or, or if you were, just look up those videos because they're really good. Um, he spends, I think, seven or eight weeks teaching through the book of Galatians. But that's one of the things he talked about is there's one fruit of the Spirit, meaning it should be said of anyone who considers him a Christ follower. So, but the acts of the flesh, the many manifestations of giving in to those disordered desires are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, which would be bookend as uh, just sexuality outside of the will of God. Anything, thoughts, actions outside of the will of God. Idolatry and witchcraft, which we could maybe summarize as uh, religious activity outside of the will of God. And then he's going to give this huge list that uh, 
make all of us a little angry because it talks about us at some point. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. I'm not sure if ambition is supposed to be in there. I, don't, I think that's a typo. Just kidding. It's definitely supposed to be in there. Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and like. Simply put, if I could summarize those, um, it would be community outside of the will of God, right? Whenever we are giving in to envy, discord, hate, whatever it is, we are living in community with others, interacting with them outside of the will of God. So those are manifestations of us living in the flesh. And then he has a warning for the church in Galatia and for all of us here tonight. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to just pause with that and sit with that for a second because, again, if we just read that at face value, that might seem like, well, man, I struggled with envy yesterday or today or, like, at church, I don't know. And does that mean, like, I did not inherit the kingdom of God? And I think it's really important to note that he's not talking about a, a struggle or that there's a temptation Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us, himself was tempted in every way but without sin. What he's talking about is giving over to a habitual lifestyle of these things. And, and really, that's just evidence that you haven't experienced uh, forgiveness and the grace of God if, if you're giving over to a habitual lifestyle of these things. And, and so it just logically flows that those will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22 introduces the idea of the fruit of the Spirit. I mentioned it before. That there's one fruit. Um, I grew up in church, and I remember the flannel graph in the 90s, and you pull out the, the grape that was like patience and the pineapple that was um, kindness and whatever, whatever, and then you make a cornucopia of many fruits of the Spirit. And I'm not sure how anyone got saved in the 90s with flannel graph, but hey, here I am. Um, well-intentioned, I loved my Sunday school teachers back then, but there's just one fruit of the Spirit. And that's important for us to know because if you consider yourself a Christ follower in here today, each one of these attributes and characteristics should increasingly ident uh, you, you should increasingly identify with throughout your lifetime. And again, it's not that we get it right 100% of the time. That would be a misstep in the direction of legalism. But it's that over our lifetime, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, over our lifetime that we just increasingly and increasingly look more and more like Jesus because he's our king and we want to emulate him. In the language of Paul elsewhere, he'd say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Man, we need some gentleness in the world. Um, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. All right, so again, that should, not with perfection. Um, as Andy Stanley says, there's no wrinkle-free life. Like, I get that. And that's not what I'm saying. But over the lifetime, we should increasingly exemplify these attributes because we've been changed, because we have the Spirit of God in us. 
Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Note, belong to Jesus. Not those who perform well enough for Jesus or those who have been in church their whole lives for Jesus or whatever, fill in the blank. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. And we belong by faith. And those of us who belong, who are Christ followers in here today, have crucified, past tense, right? The flesh and its passions and desires. And again, that's that tension of yes, but not quite fully realized. Yes, we still struggle with these, but yes, we have crucified our flesh with its passions and desires. In verse 25, I think, would be kind of a summary of this idea of not living in the flesh, but living in the Spirit. And he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Again, that idea of a journey of where the gospel and the Spirit of God just permeates. It just seeps into every square inch of our being. And so that we increasingly, not perfect, but increasingly think the way that Jesus thinks, we increasingly act the way that Jesus acts. And then we increasingly feel or are motivated by the things that Jesus feels and are motivated by. And we do that by keeping in step with the Spirit. Something that's been super helpful for me in regards to this is what um, Brother Lawrence, he was a monk in France, uh, I think in the medieval ages. His job was to wash dishes. He went into the ministry to do ministry, to preach, to hear to pray, and um, that's what you did. You just devoted your time to that. He got the duty of washing dishes, which uh, is a stinky job. That's my job at home, and so I, I have experience with that. But in that, God really just instilled in him the practice, the spiritual practice of the presence of God. And what I mean by that is just this idea that if God is everywhere, um, the big theological word you can impress someone with is omnipresent. If he is omnipresent, if he really is existing everywhere all at once, then that means I can have communion, I can have friendship with God, I can worship him in line at the bank. I can worship him at my desk at work. Whatever I'm doing, if I'm playing softball, if I'm uh, having a meal with friends, whatever, this is not to discount what we do in gathering together, worshiping together, singing songs together, praying together. That's essential. But in addition to that, um, and I think when we get this, it'll really change the way we view our relationship to Jesus, that we can practice the presence of God anywhere we are. We can walk in step with the Spirit. I like how he throws in this little one. Of course, the divisions aren't like... Uh, God breathed. Those were given by an editor. But verse 26 says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. It's like they probably needed that reminder. <laughs> like maybe we need that reminder. But he just threw that one in there. So my encouragement for all of us and myself included would be to keep in step with the Spirit this week and what that looks like. Um, getting into the Word of God, reading, studying it, hearing someone teach it, praying, worshiping, telling others about God just practicing the presence of God, whatever that might look like for you this week, uh, that would be my invitation for you and for myself as well. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being here um, and for listening to me talk for way too long. We all, we'll see you around. Thank you, guys. Have a good night. You're dismissed.